Well, consider the technological advances of our day. Consider your phone in the palm of your hand, all the technology that's wrapped up in your phone. And I think about my phone and all the advances of it and all the things that I can do on it, but I don't know how old you are, but I may be a little older for this audience, but I remember back when it was called a telephone and it was stuck on a wall and I would have to go and stand by it. We had a rotary phone when I was a kid and you would literally have to take the phone for some of you who don't know and put it to your ear and turn the dial on the phone. And we had this old phone that had metal on it and think about metal and electricity and sometimes that it would even shock you. I want you to think about how advanced our phones are today that we've gone from rotary phone uh, to mobile phone and think about the mobile phone and what that represented. Uh, it really only represented a, a change in location because it was still just a telephone. And then the Blackberry came out and now we have these smartphones. What an incredible advance in technology, advance in civilization that's affected all of our lives. And if basically it's also, you could say it this way, this is an advance in culture. And yet, think of all the incredible advances, the other incredible advances that you and I live with. The, the medicines that we have that 100 years ago weren't available for people and something like we're walking through right now. And yet, at the same time, these incredible medical advances yield people who OD on some of these prescription drugs. And so, these things are used for great good and also for harm. Think about weapons that were meant to protect us that can also harm people. See, today we want to talk about the rise of culture, the beginnings of culture, and how fast culture advanced, but also in the same space, in the same time, you see the continual moral decay, even early on in the book of Genesis. What is culture? And its root level, what, what we mean when we say culture is what we do with what God has given us. What do we do with the resources that God has given us? What do we do to create new things that God has given us in, in smaller form? And there's some questions that come out of this, right? There's some questions for you and me. What do you do with culture? Is culture to you good, bad, or indifferent? I mean, you're using, you're streaming an online worship service right now, and you're using the advancement of civilization and culture right now in the palm of your hand or looking at your smart TV. But what do we do with culture? How can it be used for good? And how can it be used for ill? Ill. Uh, can God use it even when it develops from ungodly people, when it develops from people who are surely made in the image of God, um, and yet they don't know God? Has the world just recently gotten more corrupt or has it been that way for a while? When we think of the moral decay of our society, I think the older I get, the more I say things like, well, when I was a kid. But when we look at the beginning of time, moral decay actually happens pretty quickly. So what do we do with that? And maybe most importantly this morning, where or who do you count on when the world is filled with trouble? Where do you go? Where is your hope? What do you count on when those things happen? When the coronavirus happens, like you're sitting at home isolated, wondering what's going to happen to your health, to those that you love, to your job. Where do you go for your hope? We're going to talk about 
that question before we're done. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26. That's where we'll be this morning. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Genesis, um, but the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. The beginning of God's world, the beginning of his creation, the beginning of man and woman made in the image of God, both male and female. The beginning we see in Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning of marriage where one man and one woman come together in marriage in a covenant before God. And we see these amazing beginnings to civilization, to to the world that we live in. And we saw that God was a loving ruler who ruled over the world and gave us blessing. And then we come to chapter three in Genesis and, and we see the first sin where Adam and Eve fall into sin, that they want really their own way. They want to be ruled by themselves. And so they fall into sin. And as a result of that, you see the consequences, the first consequences of sin that you and I still live with today. And then as you continue to look at the sad history here in Genesis 3 and 4, you see the consequences really falling out. But you also see hope because God is a God of hope that he, he is willing, even in Adam and Eve's sins, to, sin, to, be, to bring a deliverer, the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. So you see this beautiful picture, even in sin, the first sin of God's first mention of the hope that will come, that hope that we, you and I know, that come ultimately in Christ um, as our Savior. And what the Old Testament is going to do here is it's going to compare, is the narrative of the Old Testament is very much going to flow from the offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent's head and compare that to the, the offspring of man of the, or of the world. And you'll see those two different lines and you're gonna see it even more so today, the line of Cain, the ungodly line of Cain. So you come to chapter four as we saw a few weeks ago and you see Cain, you see Cain and Abel born Adam and Eve's first children and then you see Cain rise up and kill his brother and yet God is still gracious to him and protects him. So today, most of today is about advancement of culture as well as seeing the moral decay of the line of Cain and his descendants. Maybe you've heard the, the phrase or the term, well, you thought the dad was bad, wait until you see the kid. So we see, we're gonna see bad to worse in the line of Cain. I'm going to show you three things. I'm going to show you culture and carnage and consecration if we were to line this out in this text. We see culture advancing through the line of Cain and that is a good thing. And then we see the moral decay of the descendants of Cain and really reach ahead with uh, seven generations later. And then you're going to see God do some things. You're going to see God raise up another line and bring hope and restoration. So let's read Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 through 26 together. If you've got a Bible there, uh, it's one of the first few pages in Genesis 4, so just flip a few pages into your Bible, and uh, let me read this text for us. Verses 17 through 26, and we'll finish out chapter 4 this week, 17 through 26. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city, and he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Then Enoch, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, 
And Methushael fathered Lamech. Try that, try that sentence on a little faster than that at home and see how you do. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ada bore Jabal, the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. And Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. And he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. Men, I hope you don't talk to your wives that way. I, killed, I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Verse 25, look at this contrast. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. Think Genesis 3, 15, instead of Abel. For Cain killed him, and to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So first, let's look here in this text at culture, and then we'll see carnage, and then we'll see consecration. See, the first idea that I really want to leave you with this morning is this, that culture is a gift from God, and yet it's stained by sin. I think this is what you see in this text, and really before it, if you remember back to Genesis chapter 1 at the end, where God says that he made man as an image, male and female. The very next thing he says is that they should have dominion over the earth, that they should subdue the earth and fill the earth and rule over it and use effectively, use its resources for their good. And this is what you see in the garden in chapter two, where Adam's job was to take care of the garden. And so what we often call this, that God gives Adam and Eve is a cultural mandate to use the resources and the creativity that God has built into us, made in his image with infinite worth and value, that we should use the creativity and the rationale that God has given us, that he has not given even animals, and use that to advance. And this is what you see from the very first days of creation. That's important. Um, When I think, again, remember what we're saying about what the roots of culture really are. It's what we do with what God has given us. And in this text, you're going to see some developments. You're going you're to see the developments in three key areas, if you noted in that text. Look at verses 20 through 22 specifically. The implication is that there's a development of culture here, of civilization is developing. And it's interesting because what we often do is we we say that culture is good or bad, but I think what you see here is God is using culture. He's building culture even through the unbelieving line of Cain who has rejected God and run from God and built a city and decided to settle rather than to wander as God had called him to do. See, culture is not the enemy. But there are three areas of development that not only benefit Cain's line, and even in the rebellion of God, even in them wanting to create something um, to replace God, but God, you're going to see all the way through the Bible and your life and my life, you're going to see that what people mean to replace God with can actually be used by God to glorify him. And I want to show you that today because it's not that black and white about culture. 
that God can surely raise up people to build things and even bless people with uh, advance in civilization and culture. But look at these three things that you see here. Look at verse 20. You see Jabal, one of the descendants of Cain, known for his nomadic, to be a nomadic herder. Do you see it there in verse 20? Look at verse 20 in your text there. It says that um, he was, Jabal was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And so um, this is what Jabal's family was known for, the advance of, of being nomadic herders. And if you know your Bible, what you'll remember about Old Testament Israel and even coming into the New Testament, is, is this is what, um, for sustenance and food and provision and care, this is what this society was like. It was an agrarian society. Um, and so what you see in Abraham is that he was a herdsman. You see this with David. He was a shepherd. You see Jesus even uses, using this language of present day shepherding to say, I am the good shepherd. I watch over my sheep. You see the, the, some of the first people that the angels come to are shepherds in a field. And so these are the people that developed strategies and created ways in which people could herd animals and care for animals. And this was huge and important in the life of Israel. And I want you to think about the burger that you're going to go I was going to say the burger that you were going to go eat at Whataburger today and, and be blessed by that your kids want. Maybe it's the burger that you're, you're making on your grill today, but you enjoy the, the fruit of this. You and I enjoy the fruit of this. It's not bad. It's, it's good. And look at verse 21. You also see something else. You see Jubal. Think of Jubilee. Think of joy known for the development here of what? Look at the text. It says that he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So this is music, this is arts, this is culture that is being brought and developed um, by the line of Cain. I want you to think about the Bible because when you think about the line of Cain, you might think ungodly people, but these things is advancing in culture, but think about the Psalms. Think about the Psalms that you're meditating on right now. These were developed. This is poetic language that you sing with lyre and pipe and maybe guitar and piano. And so we worship our God with art. We worship our God with music, both then and now, in scripture and in now. And so this is what you see in the development. You have an iTunes account, and maybe, and you listen to, to music, and, and that can honor the Lord. And so it is not in and of itself bad. Arts and music are beautiful expressions of being made in the image of God and being people who create. And look at verse 22. You see Tubal Cain. In verse 22, what is Tubal Cain? What is he known for? And what I mean by this when I say known for, just understand this. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that these are the only people and the only line that develops this, but they were surely like the Germans are known for ingenuity. Um, they were known for these things to develop practices. And so Tubal Cain here, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And so here's what we see. We see Tubal Cain being known for and developing and helping develop industry to take the minerals that are in the earth and put them together and fashion them into things like steel. And I would you to think about the Old Testament. I want you to think about things like the building of the tabernacle. How do you think those things happened? They happened because there was development of culture and civilization was developed. 
And I want you to think about your life and how developed the things you are. I'm standing on a stage right now that's made of metal. I want you to think about your home that's made of wood and metal, your car. I want you to think, the, the other day we were sitting in our living room. And you just got to appreciate some people who have gifts, right? And um, we were in the living room the other day and we had wanted to put cabinets in into our new house in the living room uh, next to our both sides of the mantle to really frame our living room map out. And so I got a recommendation and this guy came over and I sat in a chair and just watched this guy and his craft. His craft to be able to to, to take this wood and forge it and make it into this beautiful shelf for my wife's books and for our stuff and cabinets. And I, I had my son come over and I said, I just want you to sit here and I want you to watch. I want you to watch how these guys have learned a craft and learned a way uh, to make a living and, and created these cabinets. And so this is the advance of culture and civilization that you're seeing right here in Genesis chapter Four. These are good gifts from God, good and gra- his good and gracious hand. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen these videos. I really enjoy watching these videos called uh, People Are Awesome. I don't know if you've seen that on YouTube. You got, maybe you got some time. Maybe you're on your phone a little bit more right now. Go, go, uh, go to YouTube and check these out. But that, the title should probably be People Are Insane. But think about how amazing people are and all the amazing things that people can accomplish and do and what man can do both physically with their minds. And when I think about the overpass that I go on to, to go to one place to another or the skyscrapers in Houston, you know, man, man can do amazing things. So culture is a gift from God. Culture is a gift from God. And I want you to notice one other note about this before we talk about how culture is also stained with sin. I want you to notice the timeline. All right, we're in chapter four of Genesis, which means that Adam and Eve, we believe, um, we believe that Adam and Eve were the first people on the earth and their first children, the first child was Cain. And then he has descendants. So very early on in civilization, you have great advance. Listen, I don't know when you read the Bible if, if you think about Adam and Eve or Cain and these first people on the earth, if you think about like the Geico commercial with the caveman who wasn't really, really thoughtful and he couldn't put things together. I know that's the theory that's out there that you see in your, in your public school books that man just developed like that. But early on what you see in God's civilization with people made in the image of God, early on what you see is this rapid development of culture the arts, herding, um, agriculture, industry, the forging of these things. And so I thought it was worth mentioning that we're, we're not like the guy on the Geico commercial. We're more like, if you've seen Jungle Book, Mowgli, the little kid who was around these animals. And when he came to the, to the water around people, or excuse me, the animals were kind of freaked out because he could take a piece of wood and attach string to it and dip down and get the water out. Um, from a high point. And so God has made man unique. He's made him in his image. And you see from the beginning of Genesis, just a lot of accelerated culture because we're made in the image of God because people are awesome. And God has made us and creative and God has made us this way. And yet culture is also stained by sin. It's also stained by sin. Look, even in this text, culture 
basically what Cain is doing. He leaves the presence of God in unbelief. God had, in his grace, offered him and protected his life. And Cain, still in his unbelief, as he's leaving the presence of God, he walks away from God, and God says he's going to be a wanderer. And what does he do? He builds a city. And he settles, interestingly, he settles in the land of Nod, which means the land of wanderers. So he's in this land where people are supposed to be wandering and he builds a city and he creates culture and he builds things. Here's what he's doing effectively. What he's doing, God is going to use. He's going to use for his people. He's going to use for you and me and the advancement of culture. But effectively what God, Cain is doing is, is replacing God with the things of culture, the things of his own hands, that he's the captain of his own ship. And this is what you see about Cain. And so culture is surely stained by sin. When you think about the forging of bronze and iron and metal, you can't help but think about swords and knives and guns and weapons, which can help protect, but they can also and historically have done great harm in this world. And so things can be used for good and for evil. When I think of arts and music, they certainly can be used to glorify God, but they also can be used to mock his name and perpetuate a sinful culture and a sinful ideas. And now I think about inventions and um, ingenuity of man turned harmful and deadly. When I think about my cell phone and what I can do with my cell phone, I can look at images in the palm of my hand that could destroy relationships and marriage. I can use my cell phone to say something on social media passively and aggressively towards somebody I might never say to their face. Um, I can use these great advances for good and for evil. And I think there's a passage in scripture that really puts these two things together in the New Testament. First Timothy chapter six, verse 17 says this. It says, God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There's everything that we can enjoy. Solomon also says it. hey, eat, drink, and be merry, enjoy life. And so there's very much an enjoyment that we can have in the life of culture in our, in our world to enjoy life. And yet the context of 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17, what I just told you about rich, God richly providing for us for everything to enjoy, the context is he's speaking to the rich. He's speaking to those who have a lot and he's saying to them, um, but don't put your hope and the uncertainty of riches. Enjoy it, but don't put your hope in the uncertainty of riches, but do this. Christ Community Church, do this. Put your hope in God. That's the text. First Timothy 6, 17. Culture is a gift, but it's stained by sin, and so we ought not put our hope in culture. We ought to put our hope in God. I would encourage you with that today. And as the people of God then, who the people, the people who Genesis is addressed to are, are, are the people of Israel about to go into the promised land. Do you know who's in the promised land before they take it? The Canaanites, the people who have advanced culture and for themselves. And there's a lot of good that they're going to walk into. But God is saying to the people of Israel, um, appreciate culture, use it, but use it to worship me. Do not Turn your eyes the, to, to the things of this world, but 
Have your eyes remain on me. Hope is found in me and not in culture and not in yourself. And so there's great application for the people of God, even as they're reading Genesis 4, to be reminded that that culture is a gift, um, but our hope is in God. Um, I'd also say this. Um, We said that really Cain used culture as a replacement as a replacement for God and his relationship with God. And I want you to think, even as a believer in Christ, how often we need to evaluate, man, the thing, the stuff that I have and the things of life, am I letting those things really rule my life? Um, Am I replacing um, God with those kinds of things? Maybe what ways am I replacing um, God with my stuff and the things of this world and the things of culture. I also think there's great application in a really time when we're kind of trying to figure out um, in a new normal COVID-19. I am grateful to God that I'm not living in the early 1900s. Um, I grew up uh, on a ranch and when you drive into uh, up to the gate, uh, our family cemetery that goes back to the 1800s is really at the the front of our property and interesting place for it. Uh, but when you go, I, I remember I've done this a number of times when we go to the cemetery and we visit graves and we clean off graves of, of my grandfather. Um, going through the cemetery, I remember the first time that I went through that cemetery and I was looking at names and a lot of children and people who died young. And I asked my mom, who's like the family historian, what's the story here? And um, in Texas, uh, in 1800s, early 1900s, cholera was a, a big outbreak in that time. And so um, there were a lot of folks that died of those things. And I think right now, man, if I'm having to go through a pandemic and I'm having to walk through this, I'm glad I live in the culture that I live in with great medical advances. And, and it's the best time if we have to go through this, that we could be going through this. Um, and there are incredibly brilliant people that are working on vaccines and and instructing us on how we ought to be living and um, going about our daily lives. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for HEB that I can still go to. And whether the takeout or curbside takes, you know, a week or two weeks or whatever it is right now, I'm grateful for all the advances of culture in a time like this. And yet, and yet there is a microbe rolling around this earth right now that has shut down this planet. It shut down not only third world countries, but us, the most advanced country in the world. And so it, you, we ought to also remember, we ought to also remember um, that life is very frail and culture does not have our final hope. That our hope isn't in culture even. Advanced as it is with technology, that's not where we find our hope. Our hope is found in God, specifically in Christ, that Christ has died in our place, that we might have life. And as a Christian, you need to remember that. And as a Christian, you don't have to hope in the world that you live in. Something within you or something in our culture, your hope is in Christ. And so I hope that's encouraging to you, that you have hope. And it's not within, and it's not in culture, it's in the work of Christ on a cross for you. And if you don't yet know that message, I would encourage you to consider Christ, to consider what he has done for you, uh, to bring you life, life uh, in this world that is abundant, but life in the next that is secure. So culture is a gift, but sin has tainted it. What else? What else we see in this passage? We see some carnage in this passage as 
culture advances, we see um, morality decline in, in the line of Cain. So your point this morning is this, as you look at this text and you see Lamech, for example, this descendant of Cain, sin not only isolates for us from God, which it does, and it isolates us from others, it also dehumanizes. The progression of sin dehumanizes and also desensitizes us to sin. The more we participate in it, it progresses into dehumanizing behavior as well as just a desensitization of sin in our own life. And I think this is what you see, particularly with Lamech. You see the first murder and its consequences. You see isolation from family. Um, these are not new concepts, but you see God's grace, the progression of sin. Look um, there in, in the text, you see that uh, Lamech takes two wives. You see in Genesis 2 that, that God had designed marriage, this beautiful institution, this beautiful covenant before, um, before the fall uh, to be between one man and one woman. And here you see the progression of sin and, and, and Lamech taking two wives. You see bigamy here, polygamy. Um, you see a, that's a violation of what God desires for marriage. And this is very quick after this has happened. You see male dominance. Just read the way in the song of Lamech right here. Read the way in which Lamech speaks to his wives. Listen, wives. I don't know that any of us would want, ladies, would want to be the wife of Lamech, which is a result of, this, uh, of the fall. This is what we see in Genesis 3. We see uh, you see the results of male dominance and women desiring to take the place of man. And so um, you see this, you see male domineerance. Um, he was a real winner apparently as a husband and as a man. You also see him doing what? Look at it in the text. It says in verse 23 that he has killed a man for wounding him. He's bragging to his wives. It's kind of like the, the middle school boy who thinks he's really cool and he's telling these, his two wives how great he is because he's killed a man for wounding him and a young man, a child, translation is a child, he's killed a child. As a grown man, he's killed a child for striking him. Does, uh, does the crime fit, does the punishment fit the crime here? I, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so at all. It, it looks like these are more wounds that these people have, but he kills them and he brags about it and he's mocking the fact. And then you come to verse 24 and it says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77 fold. So he's saying, hey, I sin even greater than Cain did. Not only that, as he's saying, remember Cain was protected. Cain was protected from, um, God protected him even after he killed his brother. Uh, God protected him. I think what you also have here, which is really, really twisted, is, is, is in the heart of Lamech. He said, well, God protected Cain, so he's going to protect me even more if I kill more. You think about how twisted that is. Think about how evil this is, but this is what you see with Lamech. His mind is twisted. Sin's progression um, has seared his heart. There's a dehumanizing effect um, that sin has on us. And we can think of all kinds of ways in which in history, we can think of all kinds of ways, whether it's Nazi Germany, um, whatever, in, in, or Stalin in history, these extreme examples of the degradation of humanity and the desensitization that sin brings. But I want to get a little bit more personal with you. How has the deceitfulness of sin and the progression slowly hardened your heart. 
See, there's a warning for us. It may not be sin like this in our lives, but sin is deceitful. And slowly but surely, it can have a a dehumanizing effect, a desensitizing effect on our own heart. The Bible says that it, it can sear our heart. And there are consequences for that as we think about um, marriage, as we think about relationships. Um, So I would encourage you in this way. I would encourage you in this way. You know, we've been talking about flattening the curve, flattening the curve with COVID-19, but let me tell you a different kind of flattening of the curve. I think the way in which we can flatten the curve, I've got two ways in which we can flatten the curve of sin um, in our lives. Um, The first one comes out of Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is all about how God knows. He searched us and knows us. He knows when we, where we go and when we raise up. He, he can go to the depths with us. And at the end of Psalm 139, David, uh, remember what David says. He says, search me, O God, and know me. Search me, O God, and know me. God already knows, but he's asking God to search him and know him. See if there is any grievous way in me. He's opening himself up in humility to say, show me my sin, God. If there are ways that I don't even know that are grievous, show me my sin. And maybe most importantly, he says this at the end of that, see if there is any sinful way in me and lead me, lead me into the way everlasting. And so the first thing I would say to you, just as by way of application, if you want to flatten the curve of sin in your life, open yourself up to God and ask him to show you your ways. And the second way I would say to flatten the curve as it relates to sin comes out of Hebrews chapter three, verse 17. Um, And really the heart of it is this, is that you and I need community. We need one another every day. Um, Hebrews chapter three um, says this, take care brothers, lest the deceitfulness of sin push you away from the living God, but exhort one another. Here's the contrast. Here's the point. Exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day so the hardness and deceitfulness of sin will not lead you to unbelief. And so we need one another. And I know that looks different right now. We're isolated, but we need one another. You need to be texting your brothers or sisters. You need to be poloing them. You need to be communicating with one another. We need one another in this struggle. So we want to flatten the curve of sin in our lives. And so, um, but you see hope here. We we see hope in this passage as well. We see um, a gospel hope in this passage. I want you to look at the last couple of verses here as we transition. Your your first couple of points have been this. Culture is a gift from God, but tainted with sin. Sin not only isolates us from God, but it dehumanizes us and desensitizes us. Um, We know from both of those things that our hope can't come from within. Our hope can't come from culture. Um, We are not the master of our own ship or our own fate. If left to ourselves, Uh, The end doesn't look good, but we can find our hope somewhere else. Look at the last two verses of this chapter, and this is where we're going to find some hope. We're going to find something that God alone is doing. Look at verse 25 and verse 26, and your point is this. Your third takeaway is this. God alone, God alone, not man, not culture, but God alone restores hope, and he raises up worshipers. This is what you see. You see this grand contrast between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. Because if you were living in this day, you're thinking, okay, if if hope doesn't come through Cain because of his ungodliness and Abel has been killed, where is that offspring going to come from? Where is the hope 
of a deliverer, a future deliverer gonna come from. And this is probably the thought of Adam and Eve and look at Eve's faith and in this statement and what she says, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel to Seth, whose name means the granted one or appointed one. And you know, when I come to this text with this name, um, I thought for a long time in my life that my parents named me um, out of uh, Genesis 4 as this appointed one, kind of a prideful thing. And then my dad let me know that, you know, we really didn't. We saw a clock up on the wall when uh, mom was pregnant and uh, Seth Thomas clocks. And so really wish uh, he wouldn't have told me that, but that's where my name comes from uh, rather than this text. Um, but anyway, I don't know how humor works with the video thing. So I'm taking an attempt that probably didn't come off very well, but God alone restores hope and raises up worshipers. And so the name Seth means granted one or appointed one in the place uh, of, of Abel, Abel. And so they have another offspring. They have Seth and then you see, okay? So now we have hope. Now hope is restored, the offspring that would be to come, the deliverer, the Messiah. And this is what the Old Testament does. It traces the line of Christ. So when you come to the New Testament, you can look back and you can see where Christ came from, which would have been a big deal to the Jews. But you see this big contrast between the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And what do they do? This line of hope, this line that the deliverer will come through, this is what God does in their hearts. It says, and at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord because there was hope, there was restoration in the coming of Messiah, the coming of the one who would deliver because culture can't do it, we can't do it, um, but God can. And so God alone uh, restores hope and raises up worshipers. So a question, it's God who's, work, who's at work here. He restores hope. Man, what is God's ultimate aim? What is his ultimate aim in our life, in your life? What's his ultimate purpose in your life? Is God see God's ultimate purpose? Um, is it to bring health and wealth and prosperity and comfort and, and all those things that, w- that we so much desire in our lives? Or is it something else? See, I think God's purpose in your life and my life is that we know him through his son. And as we know the deliverer, then we can worship him and know him and bring fame, not to our names, like Cain's line, not to our names, but to his name, that we would humble ourselves before him and know him and worship him and make him known. That's God's aim. That's God's purpose in your life and my life. Can God use trial and tribulation and hardship to bring that about? He certainly does in this text. He certainly does in your life. He certainly does in my life. It's actually his most used method. And this is probably his most used method because we, our hearts are deceitful and we need to be humbled oftentimes in our lives. Is that fun? Is that enjoyable? Do we look forward to it? I'm not really excited about what we're walking through right now. There's a reality to it that is mentally hard and painful. Um, And yet I don't want it. It's not the way that I would prefer if I could ask God to do it a certain way. Um, I'm not enjoying any of this. And yet this is when and where God is often at work in our hearts to make us more dependent on him. See, God can use COVID-19 even. He will use it. He is using it. He's using it to make us more dependent on him, to worship him Um, Not only is this God's most used method, 
to get our attention. It's really his model. When you think about Jesus and you think about what Christ has done for you, what did he do? He became a man. God became a man. And he got down on our level and he went through uh, sickness and death and saw it all around. Then he suffered. He suffered and died on a cross for you and for me that we might know Christ. And so you don't have a God who's distant in this. You have a God who is near, who's gone through what you and I are going through in our trouble. And that ought to bring you great hope. The Bible says that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, meaning that we don't have a God that's distant, but he's walked through this himself. He's walked through pain and suffering himself. And so we can go to him and he can know us and he can care for us. I'll tell you, um, as I think about worship, um, as I think about worship, one of the big losses for me in this, as I'm thinking about it, is is just us gathering as a church um, and being together, but particularly singing together. There's something, at least in my life, that God does when we gather together and we sing, especially sing in times of trouble, in times where we're going through a hard time. I, I know in my life that God has used that and in, in ways to minister to me, to care for me. And God has chosen to use that to remind us um, through song of his goodness and his grace and his hope. And so I wonder this week, as you tune into this and as we're about to sing and worship God, um, I, I wonder if listening um, to God through song might be a, a good opportunity for you this week to take some God-centered biblical worship and dwell on it and think about it and sing to the Lord might be a great exercise for you this morning because um, God alone provides hope and he also raises up worshipers. That is his ultimate goal and salvation that people might worship him and know him. So I'd encourage you in that today. See, culture is a gift. It's tainted by sin. Left to ourselves, we use the culture in destructive ways that we're not really very good at being the master of our own fate or the captain of our own ship. It doesn't end well. But God alone grants us in his grace and in his mercy real hope through his son, Jesus, who has suffered and died for us. And that gives us great reason to worship. And so your takeaway this morning is just that. See, culture isn't the issue. Culture isn't the issue. Worship is. So where do you find your hope? Where are you finding your hope today, C3? Where are you finding your hope? And what or who do you worship? Those are the questions. Let me pray. And we will stand, hopefully, and want you to sing in your home and worship our great God um, who's delivered us, who brings us hope. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this message. Um, we, We pray that we would be a people who would trust in you, who would wait upon you as we, as we learned a little bit earlier, that we would trust in your word. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would do a work in our hearts when our hearts are anxious right now, whether it's anxiety about um, the virus that is running around or our jobs or our families or what happens. Lord, I pray that we would wait upon you, that we'd cast our burdens and our cares upon you. For you care for us. That's what your word says. And Lord, I pray maybe for one who doesn't yet know you, maybe they're tuning in today, that they would consider Christ, um, Christ who brings hope, Christ who brings forgiveness, Christ who brings restoration, that they might know you through your son. In Jesus' name, amen.